A mask is a barrier between ourselves and the world. It conceals our identity and can free us in some way from our societal restrictions. Think about how liberated people sometimes feel on Halloween. Good morning. I'm George Borecki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're talking about masks and our fascination with them. In performance, masks can be used as part of a costume. Mask maker Stanley Allen Sherman believes a mask frees an actor from his or her inhibitions and changes their relationship with an audience. I talked with him about his craft at his Manhattan studio. My name is Stanley Allen Sherman. And the reason I use all three is because when I was performing in Montana, I realized more people would come and see Stanley Allen Sherman than Stanley Sherman. Why do you think that was the case? Well, uh, my father loved the piano. He, 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 he loved playing jazz piano. And all of his children's names have rhythm. So Stanley Allen Sherman has a better rhythm to it than Stanley Sherman. Now, what kind of performance were you doing then? Uh, mime, clown. But I had already started mask making. Uh, uh, well, you know, when he came back from, uh, La, from Jacques Lecoq's, where he studied in Paris. Tell us about that study, if you will. Okay. Um, that experience, you woke up every single morning, jumped out of bed, and rushed to not miss a minute of the class. You studied because you wanted to, because there was things to learn. Now specifically, what were you learning? Mime, movement, psychology of theater, how to work with other people, uh, how to perform with masks, uh, a neutral mask. It was really not so much learning as discovering. Discovering how to create. What kinds of masks have you worn during performance? Uh, I, I have a couple masks up there. They're uh, skulls. That was uh, for uh, Don Giovanni, for a uh, Vashik Simic, who was one of my mentors when he first came to New York, who got me started making leather masks. But, you know, those were two skulls, and they were kind of clown skulls. Seems like an oxymoron in a way, right? A clown skull. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I you you discovered, I discovered that clown uh, uh, skulls never frown; they always are smiling. <laughs> okay, uh, you know, I made masks for my own shows in the '70s out of cloth mache, which is wonderful. I also do masks for pro wrestlers. Like I created the Mankind Mask for the Old World Wrestling Federation, now no longer called that. How did you come to create that mask, the Mankind Mask? Well, they wanted a mask for The Undertaker. You know, I promised I wouldn't say why. <laughs> okay, uh, So I created this mask for The Undertaker. Uh, and I said, well, this was a nice gig. I figured that would be it. So then the uh, they called me and said they wanted another mask. I said, it's great. So I went up to Stamford. When I first went up, they picked me up in a limo at the train station. I was really impressed. That's where the WWE is based. Yes, right. Uh, you know, and uh, they showed me this design, which was a ripoff of the Silence of the Lambs mask, and I said, you know, call Paramount. I'm not going to make this. 
So I sketched out a design on a napkin, and they took it up to Vince McMahon, and I waited for about a half hour, and they came back down and said, how much? <laughs> yeah. And when can we have it? You know, and it was a three-month job and uh, to create that mask, and you know, I worked closely with uh, one of their artists. What do you think that mask did for him in the ring, wearing that Mankind mask? Well, uh, the WWF, now E doesn't know this, but it freed him. My teacher, Jacques Lecoq, said, the body can get in the way. And when you have an arena like Madison Square Gardens or several other arenas in this country and around the world, and you're playing in that arena, and a crowd is cheering you on, it's a drug. You can go further than your body can let you go. I understand that you recommend performers don't look at themselves in the mirror wearing their masks. Why is that? Mirrors suck energy. <laughs> Basically, real simple. You, uh, you get an image of what you look like, and it sets it rather than opens it up. It doesn't free the total image. It limits possibilities. What I always have people do is hold the mask and look at it. You know, look at it at different angles. Breathe with it, walk around with it. Get to know it by looking at it. And then you put it on. It's almost like a meditation. Tell me about the process of creating a mask and what you think about when you're sculpting a mask, what's okay. going through your mind. Okay. It's an, interesting because I start out with emotions. What emotions do I want in this? What are the characteristics? What, who is this person? And because I never had formal training as a sculptor, uh, I use my theater exercises. You know, I'll be jumping around and living as the character. You become the character. So you create the emotions of the character, of the being. Then it gets into the technical side. What types of materials do you use to make your masks? Uh, the physical masks are usually either made out of leather or neoprene latex. I've also used paper mache and cloth mache, and you know I teach. In fact, I'm teaching tomorrow uh, a student coming down from Canada how to do paper and cloth mache. So those are the four basic materials that I use. Stanley, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, and uh, uh, have a wonderful everything. Stanley Allen Sherman is a performer and mask maker. He's online at maskarts.com. Perhaps one of the most famous masked performers of our time is the Phantom of the Opera. I recently talked with Hugh Panero, who plays the Phantom on Broadway, about what it's like to wear that iconic ghostly facade. It's a huge honor, and uh, I believe I'm number 13. I think I'm number 13 in line after, you know, Michael Crawford was the, the original phantom so we uh we take great pride in our mask and every mask is actually different and 
made for your specific face. So not, you, would, you and I would not have the same exact mask. I had to do what they call a uh, life cast where they pour alginate over my head and I was breathing through two little straws in my nose and you're completely encased in this alginate for a few minutes and they make a replica of your face and from that they actually custom make this mask and it's fiberglass and lined in leather and what's really interesting I think is on stage it looks white but if you see it up close it's actually five different colors we've got all sorts of dove gray and black and even a little pink in the cheek and this mask is um, hand-painted and touched up daily by my dresser, Andrew, and he keeps, keeps it looking perfect so that every audience gets the perfect mask. You're holding the mask here in I your hand. Am. I'm holding it in my hand. It's become a part of me. How long does it take you to transform into the Phantom before a performance? Um, the makeup process starts uh, anywhere between 6.30 and 7.00. It takes about an hour, depending upon how much I move around and uh, torment my poor makeup artist and how much we talk and gossip. But one of the interesting things is that Thelma Pollard, the makeup artist, cut about an hour off of the makeup time-wise because she pre-paints the prosthetic pieces. I wear three prosthetic pieces every night. They get glued on my face after a bald cap. And in the old days, they used to glue them on your face and then paint them. Thelma came up with the idea of putting them on a wig block the night before, painting them, powdering them down, and then gluing them on your face already painted. So that cuts about an hour off the time, and I really appreciate that because I get fidgety. And what's post-performance like? How long does it take to take it all off? Getting the makeup off is so much easier. You, I take some chemical and some... Uh, Hydra oil is it's a special oil, and uh, I kind of gently rip the bald cap behind my ears and start peeling it off and working it off. And uh, we use a lot of uh, makeup remover and uh, something called Supersolve, I think. Uh, it melts the glue, basically, and a lot of hot, steamy washcloths, and then I get the remainder of it off in the shower. So it's about an hour to get it on, but only about 15, 20 minutes to get it off. Now you have two masks here. Tell us about this other mask. This is the mask that I wear at the top of Act 2. It is known as the Red Death. And I will tell you that this is a particular favorite of a lot of little, little kids. They always, if the kids come backstage, they say, where's the skeleton mask? And I always show them this. It's a beautifully sculpted mask, but very simplistic in design because the, uh, the chin piece fits right over my chin. And when I open my mouth, the jaw opens up, and it is literally on rubber bands, black rubber rubber bands. So it's very simple, but a completely effective design. And um, as you can see, there's mesh screen in the that looks black from the audience, but that's where I can see out of the uh, the mesh mesh screen. So because I'm actually coming down a flight of stairs in this mask, so it's it's potentially dangerous. Now you, of course, have had other roles throughout your career that did not involve a mask. How different is it to perform in a mask? I mean, does it change your outlook in terms of being on stage? That's a really great question. It re what it really changes, and I think unless you've played the Phantom, it's hard to imagine this, but because we have three prosthetics that are foam latex, you are, in essence, soundproofing 
one half of your face. And as a singer, you use your face as a resonator. Um, so when you put the foam latex over the right side of your face and then a fiberglass mask that's lined in leather over that side of your face as well, it's almost, I always tell little kids, it's like if you want to know what it's like playing the Phantom, cover up your right ear and sing for three hours because you really get a different perspective of your, your voice. You don't hear yourself the way you hear yourself, let's say, in rehearsal when you're not wearing the mask. So that is something that I've really had to adjust to and that I've had to learn uh, how to negotiate around that because the tendency is if you can't hear, you're going to push, which is why I think a lot of guys have lost their voice playing this, this role. You know, it's a constant, constant effort on my part that I don't uh, push and I really try to maintain, you know, vocal health by doing a good warm-up before I put the mask on and then even a little bit of what they call a warm down in the shower afterwards I will sing once I get all the makeup off and the mask off I will do a, just a you know maybe five to seven warm down where I kind of get my voice back in line so I can feel what it's like to resonate again without all that stuff on your face what about simply getting into character when you have the mask on and you see yourself in a mirror do you sort of forget Hugh for a moment yeah the makeup and the mask are a huge part of this character. The designer of our show, Maria Bjornsson, who is no longer with us, uh, her concept for the Phantom, or Eric, is, which is his name, um, is that he, in an effort to make himself look attractive to Christine, he models himself after Rudolph Valentino. Um, so the makeup is very stylized and heightened, very much like silent film makeup. The, the eyebrow is more arched. The lips are darker, the eye is smoky, and I get hollowed out in my cheekbones. So that's the first part that really you start to disappear once you get all the, the, the grease paint and the prosthetics on. And then the final you know, piece of the puzzle, which really, when the minute you put the mask on, you definitely, it's very empowering. Um, the only thing I can equate it to for people who have never really worn a mask is when you have a really cool pair of sunglasses and you put them on, you know, sometimes you just all of a sudden you feel like, oh, I feel like I'm a James Bond or a movie star because I've got these cool glasses. Well, it's a very similar thing. You put this mask on and you feel very empowered because you really feel kind of uh, regal. And, and it's designed that way. He's got, you know, he's got a beautiful tuxedo and this mask completes the look. You know, it's not until the final scene that he is unmasked and you see all the deformity underneath it. And you, for, for my money, that's when you actually meet Eric for the first time because he no longer is wearing a mask. Everything up to that point, he is pretending because he has this almost safety, safety shield. It's like a shield. I never thought of it. I just dawned on me now. It's, like a, he's, it's kind of like wearing a magical shield on your face, protection against the mean people in the world that have pointed at you and made fun of your deformed face. Hugh, is it okay to say break a leg? Yeah. Break a leg. Thank you. I will. I'll do my best. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarki. Besides the Phantom, there are many masked characters on Broadway, including those in The Lion King. 
I talked with a production makeup supervisor of that show about how she masks the performers with elaborate makeup. My name is Elizabeth Cohen. I'm the production makeup supervisor of The Lion King on Broadway. I have a crew of two other people, including myself, or a total of three. As all crew members for the show are, we're there an hour and a half before the show. An out sheet comes. It's, it's the sheet of paper that comes and says, you know, this actor's out of the show and this is the person that's covering them. And uh, you assess what that means to your particular track. We call it a track. So I have certain specific things that I do through the course of the show, as does my assistant, as does the third chair. And so looking at that in-out sheet informs how we set up our track for the evening, which means that during the show, there are a lot of ensemble quick changes. Um, You know, somebody will start the show as a gazelle, and then later they become a lioness, and then later they become another gazelle, or some, you know, things like that. And so, you know, skipping for a moment to the performance part of the show, for the most part, my crew are down on stage level doing, well, not for the most part, a good part of their show is down there doing the quick changes. So back to the start of the workday, they have to prepare their kits for what that performance is gonna need. So they need, they have a lioness kit that has different colors depending on the different skin tone of the performers. They have some, yeah, I guess we all have a gazelle kit. We each paint gazelles at one point. Somebody does rhinoceros paintings. So certain information on the in-out sheet will affect their kits, like who's gonna be in what lioness, whereas the rhinoceros makeup is the same no matter who's doing it. So, you know, certain things you can just do without thinking about it, and some things you have to really process the in-out sheet. So that's the first half hour of our job. And then at what's called the hour call, which is the hour before the performance begins, we share the makeup, the room with the hair department, so it's a hair and makeup room, and there's five total people working in that room. And at hour, we each get a person in our chair. So I get Scar, the assistant gets Zazu, and the third chair gets Rafiki. It's, it's just in that, I mean, it has nothing to do with the one, two, three, it's just that's who happens to be doing these roles. And the scar makeup takes about 40 minutes. Zazu and Rafiki take, well, they each have half an hour. Uh, Rafiki's usually done in about 20 minutes with the person who's doing her currently. So we each do that, then they call half hour, and they each get new people. The kids come up, um, the boy gets his makeup on, um, Mufasa goes over to Brenda, those makeups take about 15 minutes each, and then the little girl comes up, and her makeup is done by the Christina's track, and uh, and then the show begins. I have people fall asleep in my chair, which is wonderful because they're like, God, it's so relaxing, which is nice. That's great. But I have an eye, uh, a brush on your eyebrow, and you've just suddenly dipped your head, and now your eyebrow looks crazy. And I don't really have time to fix it. I mean, you know, if it was going all the way up her forehead, well, I'd have to. <laughs> but sometimes it's just like, okay, well, now you have, tonight you have kind of Groucho Marx eyebrows, and you're going to have to work with that. You make that work now. You have to make that work. <laughs> so, you know, but it's, it's a blast, too. You know, we have... So, there's so much personality backstage, and it's so much fun. It's hard at this point to not 
know something about the look of the Lion King. You can't get in the subway without seeing, you know, people know what it looks like now for the most part. But for a long time, that was kind of hidden. You know, it was like it was like the mystery of the show. And so the advertising would be just that Lion King logo, but really no information about what you were coming in for, other than the aesthetic of that would kind of lead you to expect a certain thing, maybe. But so many people just expected, you know, that these actors were going to be in lion suits, furry lion suits, and, you know, and it's so completely beyond that and so beautifully expecting the audience to join you on a certain creative level. You know, it doesn't dumb things down for the audience. It's like, you know, we're expecting you to make this leap, that this person dressed in human clothing with a, a very kind of stylized mask on his head, we're expecting you to understand that that's a lion. We don't need to tell you by having him in furry costumes. So the beauty of that is that the makeup, we're not painted, it's not like cats, no offense to cats, but it's not kitty cat faces and it's not, you know, deer style faces. It's very tribal and it's, uh, most of the makeup is in fact based on some very specific tribal makeups from the African continent for the most part. That was Elizabeth Cohen. She's the production makeup supervisor for The Lion King on Broadway. Not all masks are physical. Off the stage, we live among people who wear metaphorical masks every day. In her book, Passing, When People Can't Be Who They Are, Brooke Kroger explores the stories of people who feel compelled to wear these masks to protect themselves. She joins me in the studio this morning. Brooke, thank you so much for coming in pleasure. Thank you for having me. How do you define passing? I describe it as presenting yourself in the world as someone other than who you understand yourself to be. Why would someone need to do that, feel the need to do that? I think there are a lot of reasons, some of them better than others. But the one that I focused on in the book was the decision to do this to circumvent the prejudices and preconceptions of others the kinds of preconceptions and prejudices that kept you, that thwarted you, that thwarted a person from doing what they wanted to do in the world that was reasonable, you know, not murder people, but be in the military or uh, at the time be a conservative rabbi, which you could not do if you were gay, that sort of thing, or if you were gay in both cases. So um, those would be cases. Or uh, just for schoolboys, schoolgirls, who um, had the opportunity to get around the prejudice they knew their peers would have and simply not disclose information that wasn't present in their appearance, that sort of thing. How did this concept of people acting one way out in public, not true to who they are, come to your consciousness? You know, it's funny, as you become a professor and you have to keep explaining your body of work, you, you're forced to analyze how you think about things. And I had started, my, my first book was about Nellie Bly, the journalist at the turn of the century, last century, who adopted personas to do her reporting. So I already had a fascination with this. It was pretty clear. And then my second book was about Fanny Hurst, who was a short story writer and novelist of the 10s and 20s and 30s and 40s who also fascinated me, in part because she wrote Imitation of Life, which you may or may not be familiar with. I think people are less familiar with it. But it was a really important passing story of a black child who was very light-skinned, who passes for white, but grows up in a very white, privileged environment. And then, you know, the question becomes, why do I have to be subject to all this 
inability to do the things I would like to do simply because of the color of my skin when in every other way I can be someone present in this other more privileged world. Uh, so I was fascinated from that, especially the black discourse at the time over these questions. And then I found myself asking, because uh, Imitation of Life was a 1919 kind of story, you know, does anyone do that anymore? Would there be any reason for someone to do this anymore? And I thought, what, you know, what would be the conditions where someone would decide to pass in our culture? And I thought, well, maybe an undocumented worker might pass for documented. That would be a good reason for doing something like that, something very akin to what was true in 1920 or 1919. And, uh, and then I thought, well, does anyone do this? So I started looking for stories. And I wanted stories that were very contemporary at the time, so they had to be not older than the 1990s, because this was 2003, like in the past 10 years, and someone who had also stopped passing so that they could tell me the story, because, of course, if they were passing, they're not disclosing, so they wouldn't tell you. Uh, so that became important, and then I thought, this is going to really be hard to find, and in fact, it wasn't that hard to find. So I probably had 30 or 40 leads people I interviewed, stories to choose from, and then settled on six that kind of formed their own little string uh, in an interesting way. And, of course, one of them was a poet and rock critic who used a different name, but I won't give you the details of the passing because it ruins the story, and how that was done in this disembodied, interesting way. Uh, and that was an interesting way to end it because it was, you know, about liminal things that happen now in, in a digital world where you can assume identities without, you know, having a physical presence. Your book also tells the story of a black man who passed as a white Jew during the 1980s and 90s. What was daily life yeah. like for you know, him? He actually was a Jew because, I mean, he was technically a Jew, uh, at least by any Jewish canon, he's Jewish because his mother was Jewish. He simply never knew his mother because she was out of his life by the time he was about two months old. So why did he feel the need to pass as white? Well, he, he's written his own book about it subsequently, and uh, he, it's David Matthews, and he tells the story of, well, his father was very light-skinned but never passed, though he probably could have. He sort of looks like Don Knotts a little bit, but he, he, could, he, he never passed. He was always in an environment of middle-class and upper-middle-class peers in Baltimore and found that his own affinities were very much more to what happened to be Jewish kids in, in the neighborhood or in, in the area or at his schools uh, than they were to the black kids. And though he could kind of speak their language and, you know, do all of that, so he said, he says, I got a little pass on that. In fact, he really wanted to be friends with this other group. So the question became, since they're not asking, I'm not telling. And if I tell, I will lose these friendships. And, you know, this is something I discussed at length with uh, Anthony Appiah, you know, the philosopher. And, and he, you know, he sort of agreed with David's choices, saying that putting yourself in a position of total exclusion as a high school kid, that's not really a very good solution. Well, then someone else might say, you know what, then they're not really your friends they're if they're not, not really going to accept you. On the other hand, where what are you left with, mm -hmm. you know, at that point? And I think that was, that was the negotiation he made with himself. And How conflicted. Very conflicted. Yeah, yeah. All of these people are very, very conflicted, including, you know, the two more, to me, powerful cases, which was the um, conservative Jewish rabbinical student who knew he was gay, couldn't be gay in that situation. And, of course, now those rulings have changed since the book, which, you know, makes me terribly proud. Not that I had much role in that, but I, I feel very proud of that. 
and also in don't ask, don't tell situations where people have just lied and even lied before those rulings came into place simply to serve their country. I mean, how can you argue with that? And now history has basically said, gee, those were really dumb ideas and we're over that. So, you know, in some, I think, significant way, those subterfuges, as icky as they are and as hard as they were for the people who performed them during the period that they performed them, they're part of the path of change. You know, they are part of that. And you, you can even see with the women, you know, it takes 10 years or 15 years for every one of these changes to happen, but they're kind of part of the vanguard who, who, who do help those things happen, even though it's really morally conflicted, you know, and it is for them as they perform it, because the people I chose for the book, the six subjects, all were people you would like to have as friends. These are not, you know, people who you consider... Uh, nefarious or uh, not genuine. They, they're really people you'd really, really like. That was sort of part of my idea to make it even more complicated, is that you you didn't hate them for the deception. You found that the deception had a place. Brooke Kroger, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Brooke Kroger is an author, journalist, and professor of journalism at New York University. Find more on her and her book, Passing When People Can't Be Who They Are, at brookkroger.com. That's all the time we have for this week's Cityscape. You can find past episodes of the show in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. My thanks to senior producer Veronica Volk and producer Taylor Nolk. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York, listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.